Welcome to another episode of the Pint-Sized Science Podcast, hosted by Science in the News at Harvard Medical School. My name is Theodora Motz, and I am currently the Clinical Research Coordinator at the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders. I graduated from Harvard College in 2019 with a BA in Neuroscience. I should warn you right now that today's episode is going to feature some mature content, so viewer discretion is advised. Today, we're going to talk about sex. That pleasurable, exhilarating ecstasy that comes when two bodies merge. Or at least, that's sex at its best. That's the sex everyone likes to talk about and think about. But what about the awkward sex? The bad sex? Sure, you might confide in your close friends about it, but most people don't like broadcasting sex that doesn't live up to the standards set by movies and media. And that makes sense. Sex is intensely personal. But as a society, we still hold on to this idea that there are right ways and wrong ways to do it. And if we're not doing sex right, whether that's not often enough, too often, with the wrong partners, or in the wrong ways, we can feel like it reflects badly on us. So what happens when sex is not only bad, but physically painful? Maybe you've already experienced it yourself, or know someone who has. Studies show that around 10% of people will, at some point in their lives. In this situation, we might ask ourselves questions like, how do I handle pain in one of my most intimate and personal body parts? How do I deal with the impacts this has on my relationships? And perhaps most importantly, why is this happening to me? If you have a vulva, or the external genitals that include the clitoris, labia, and entrance to the vagina, this is where we come in. I work with some of the world's leading experts on pain during sex and pain in the vulva. In this episode, I interview two of them. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein. I'm the director for the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders in both Washington, D.C. and New York City. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at George Washington University um, in Washington, D.C., and I'm the past president of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Uh, My name is Dr. Caroline Pukal. I am a professor of psychology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario in Canada. I'm also the director of the Sex and Relationship Therapy Service, uh, which is at the Queen Psychology Clinic. And I direct a large research lab um, looking at various aspects of sexual health called the Sexual Health Research Laboratory. And you could find um, all information about the lab and our research and the team at uh, www.sexlab.ca. Dr. Goldstein and Dr. Pukal are leading researchers and clinicians in sexual pain disorders. And they know better than anyone how to talk about delicate and complicated topics. Dr. Goldstein is a gynecologist and Dr. Pukal is a clinical psychologist, so you'll hear how complicated this work can be from multiple health perspectives. 
They both do amazing work treating patients and researching these disorders, which fall under the category of vulvodynia, which literally means pain in the vulva. There are many potential causes of this pain, including overly tight pelvic floor muscles, vulvar tissue that has grown irritated because of a lack of hormones, skin disorders, or damage to nerves. The treatment to use completely depends on what is causing the pain. Unfortunately, many gynecologists aren't trained in how to diagnose and treat these conditions, so people with vulvodynia can suffer for years without knowing that they can get better. We hope to increase awareness by talking about vulvodynia more and normalizing it, since nearly 20% of people with vulvas can experience vulvodynia at some point in their lives. Anyway, let's dive in. First, let's hear what they have to say about how they got started in this field. Well, sort of uh, uh, unusual in that um, I had a normal OBGYN residency training program um, way back when. It was about 20,000 hours of residency training over about a four-year period. But in that entire in that entire four years, I had one 45-minute long lecture on sex. Um, uh, and that may surprise a lot of a lot of women, but unfortunately that was sort of normal um, at the time. And um, But when I came out of my residency, um, it was actually about the exact same time that Viagra was released for, for men. And so I joined the faculty of Johns Hopkins and um, they asked me what I was interested in and I, for some reason, said female sexual dysfunction. Um, and they said, well, uh, you're now the Johns Hopkins expert on female sexual dysfunction. And I said, I don't know anything. And the chairman at the time said, nobody does. Go figure it out. Wow. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So That's... how did you figure it out? Well, first, uh, you know, it's funny. I first well, went to the medical textbooks and there was almost nothing out there. So I went, then went to uh, my friendly Barnes & Noble. And then there were a lot of books about sex. Um, but most of those books were about different positions, you know, Karma Sutra and uh, updated Karma Sutra type books. Um, and then there are a lot of um, books about spots in the vagina, um, the G spot, the O spot. Um, uh, and so uh, there's a whole range of people who named areas of the vagina and said that these are the, the keys of sexual pleasure. And then there are a lot of books about orgasm. You know, the extended orgasm or the how to have orgasms in five minutes or how to have as many orgasms as you want. Or there's even stock market orgasm. Um, so, uh, but again, this was not really answering what the, the complaints that the, the patients that I had. Um, at the time, most women were complaining of one of two things, either lack of desire. Um, so figuring out where the right spot in the vagina was certainly was not going to answer that or they're experiencing sexual pain um, and none of these books address that issue so after having a hard time finding any literature on it what did you do um, I started there actually concurrently about this there was a brand new conference called the female sexual function forum um, that I started attending, which eventually turned into the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, Women's Sexual Health, or ISHWISH, and I eventually became president of that society. But I started going to that, um, and I really um, quickly understood that I had to learn a lot of different 
fields, um, I had to understand endocrinology to understand the hormones better. I had to understand neurology to understand the nerves better. I had to understand dermatology because a lot of the pro problems are dermatologic. Um, I had to learn um, all about uh, the pelvic floor muscles, so I'd learn a lot from physical therapists. So I had to take little pieces from lots of different specialties and sort of put it all, all together to figure out the causes. So I have been in this field actually for more than 20 years, ever since I was an undergraduate student at McGill University. Um, it, uh, so I remember being in Irv Binnick's um, human sexuality course. I believe I was in my third year of undergraduate. Um, and he mentioned uh, this sort of dyspareunia topic, which is defined as painful sexual intercourse. Um, and I had a huge interest in neuroscience and pain at the time and was really trying to sort of sort of figure out a niche for me to move forward in. And I was still struggling with sort of the question of do I want to do research or do I want to do clinical work? Like, do I do both? Like, how do I kind of go about this? And I remember sitting in his class and thinking, listening to sort of, you know, the where the science was at, which was actually just at the very beginning. You know, they had just sort of established that dyspareunia seemed to have different subtypes and seemed to be better sort of explained uh, by looking at it as a pain condition. Because up until then, um, you know, people were dismissing and invalidating uh, especially female-bodied individuals, so mostly women, uh, who had this condition saying, it's all in your head, we can't find anything physically wrong, go home, have a glass of wine, um, maybe something's up with your partner, maybe you don't really want to have sex with them. And I thought to myself, well, that doesn't sound reasonable coming from a chronic pain, you know, research interest background. I was like, well, chronic pain, you can't see that. And why would you know, people dismiss and invalidate this. But of course it was layered with sexuality and it was layered with sort of women, you know, who have been biased, you know, against in the medical field uh, historically. Um, and it's rooted in sort of this idea that women are, you know, hysterical and sort of, you know, very somatically based and express things, you know, uh, psychological things through their bodies. And, and it, it sort of takes on this negative term. Um, and unfortunately, even though it's, you know, even though, you know, people aren't aware that this is this is what biases are all about. We're not really aware that we're sort of enacting them or, or maintaining or perpetuating them. Uh, but it does come through and research has actually shown that uh, women, um, as compared with men, are more likely to have their pain dismissed and invalidated um, in every single area of chronic pain. And especially when we layer that sexual piece onto it. So part of me was intrigued from a research point of view. Part of me was just intrigued because I wanted to help people um, and especially women um, you know and it just brought out this this side of me where um, I felt very passionate about being able to help people who had this kind of pain and I wanted to know how I could sort of change this narrative. It sounds like this field is incredibly complex and affected by, in one of the emails you wrote me, you wrote biopsychosocial uh, sort of contributors. And so I, I would love to talk more about that and how yeah. I know from a personal experience and also from a lot of our patients who come in, 
often the it's so hard because the brain component is often used to discount you know some of the physical realities and so i was wondering um how you sort of handle that and how you how you view that um connection in a way where one doesn't cancel out the other Right. And so, you know, I, I was trained um, in a psychological model. So I have a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, so um, I not only sort of practice professionally in a, in a clinical setting, you know, and train students, um, you know, sort of within this setting, a large part of what I do is research. And my the orientation I chose by going to a psychology program, um, you know, is different from, let's say, if I had gone to um, let's say certain medical schools, which are pr- predominantly biomedical in nature. Um, I, I looked at different options um, and I decided that biopsychosocial kind of work for me, uh, knowing that I'd be limited in the bio, but I could work with people like Andrew Goldstein, you know, and Irwin and, and a whole bunch of people, like knowing that I could collaborate uh, with people who had that expertise, uh, but also having a strong knowledge, you know, of the bio stuff that could, that could be contributing. Um, I, I liked the fact that um, it took sort of the whole patient um, into consideration where I could look at some of the biological indicators, but I could actually really focus on how were the sim- how are the symptoms affecting them um, and what are some of the factors that uh, we could work on in terms of moving them forward in terms of managing their pain. Now, pain is, is, is pain. I come from, you know, a neuroscience background with a lot of pain education within that. Uh, pain is considered to be a biopsychosocial phenomenon. So for me, it wasn't a huge, you know, step for me to continue in this vein for my, my PhD in clinical psych. Um, knowing that there are factors that initiate sort of this, you know, sort of biological event, but that a lot of the time there are bio, biological, psychological, and social factors that maintain it, um, that, that kind of make its expression more negative, more positive, um, and that, you know, really need to be looked at in order to understand where could we go uh, in terms of treatment. So instead of looking at a linear process of like biological factor A has now led to, you know, B, C, and D, I look at things within more of a cycle um, where the biological is definitely there, you know, the psychological, it's all related for me. Like I don't separate between mind and body and biological and psychological for me because our heads are attached to our bodies and we have a spinal cord that integrates all of this information, sends messages to the brain, and then our brain can actually dampen those pain signals, right? For me, I don't separate them. I look at them. Um, I try to work with where, you know, in those areas that I'm competent in working, and then I collaborate with others to help flesh out those other parts. So it's collaborative. Uh, ideally, everything's kind of happening at the same time with this client. And we're, ta- you know, we're tackling multiple parts of that cycle. Let's hear what Dr. Goldstein had to say in response to the same question. You and I have talked a lot about sort of the brain-body connections of these disorders and um, how a lot of times women are di- are told that it's just in their head and sometimes psychology is used to discount the physical manifestation. Um, in your mind, what is the brain-body connection and how do you address both without sort of using one to discount the other? So there's almost 
always, I mean 99 plus percent of the time, a physical cause of pain. So if there is pain, there is a cause of it. Now, that that uh, that physical cause can be certainly potentiated, either in a good way or a bad way, um, by um, psychological aspects. So anxiety certainly worsens pain. And that's actually a purely physiologic thing. The chemicals in the brain that actually are increased with anxiety or the anxiety are the same chemicals that are increased with pain. So to say someone is more anxious, therefore they have more pain is, is very true and vice versa. Um, uh, but uh, the first thing and most important thing is I don't discount that there's a physical cause because almost always there is. And it's my responsibility to figure that out. As I said earlier, I trained and I only had one 45-minute long lecture about sex, but unfortunately that's not much better now, 20 years later. And, um, and still the vast majority of, of OBGYNs have very little training in sexual pain disorders. Limitations are that I certainly understand that how important addressing um, the psychosocial aspects of of uh, of these uh, uh, pain disorders um, is is just as important to address those aspects, um, and I, I think we do try to do that by referring out to counselors, sex therapists, um, physical therapists, and um, and but it, but I think I always could do a better job doing that. I certainly also address the the mood disorders that are very common, such as an anxiety disorders or depression that um, very commonly coexist with these. Um, uh, and But I've, I found my collaboration with Dr. Pulkal to be incredibly useful um, over the uh, for over the years, and, and that's why we've written, I think, two or three textbooks together and, and lots of and other books because um, I constantly need to um, uh, learn more about the psychosocial aspects of, of pain disorders. And she's constantly doing amazing research um, into those areas. Um, and it really illuminates. And we, we do too. Um, one of our most recent papers actually uh, were, was uh, the percentage of, of women who have pelvic floor dysfunction, tight pelvic floor muscles, who have um, an, anxi an anxiety disorder. Um, and we're doing that with even more um, uh, uh, other pains, such as um, lichen sclerosis and pedental neuralgia. So um, even people, when people have truly definable medical illness, they almost, you know, not very commonly um, have either a mood disorder or mood disorder traits associated with these things. Um, I, I mean, I think it's incredibly important to be clinical um, and to see as many patients as possible because um, uh, there's such a wide variety of presentations of even one specific disorder. But I also think it's important that clinicians be researchers um, because the more um, the more we know, the, the more it's obvious that we know we need to know so much more. Um, and so um, it's only the lazy brain who just sort of says, I'm just going to stick with what I got, uh, the knowledge I have, and, and, and that's, a, that's good enough. Um, because we certainly don't uh, help all of our patients. Um, I think we're doing a great, great, great job if we're helping 80% of our patients get 80% better. 
but that leaves 20% of our patients not getting there. And it's also 80% is not 100% better. So I think we're doing a good job, but I'd love to do a great job. Speaking of helping more people, I was really excited to talk to Dr. Pukal about the work she does because her sexual health research lab also conducts a lot of research on other aspects of sexual health, such as gender identity, sexual identity, and partner preference. So I asked her to tell me a little more about that work. Yeah, absolutely. So we were one of the first to actually look at sort of vulvar pain experiences in in women who uh, were not only sexual majority in terms of their identity, but also sexual minority. Uh, So lesbian, bisexual women. And guess what? They have the same kind of pain that heterosexually identified women who are having sex with men and, you know, penile vaginal penetration, like that it is the same kind of pain. It is just in different situations. And so a lot of the work I do um, is not only clinically, but also in my research is I try to tap into inclusive, um, I try to be as inclusive as possible with respect to sexual identity, with respect to partner gender identity, partner birth assigned sex, um, you know, gender identity, you know, birth assigned sex of the participant themselves. Um, and we hear, you know, this, a similar narrative in terms of painful um, genitopelvic conditions. They're just expressed, sometimes uh, the patterns are very similar, such that no matter what is penetrating a painful, you know, vagina or going past a painful vestibule, no, it doesn't matter what's penetrating. This could even happen like in gynecological examinations. It can happen with all sorts of things that are non-sexual, right? Um, so like pressure that elicits pain, it's going to be pressure, whether it's a sex toy or partner's finger, like during fisting or a penis or whatever. Um, so we, we just have to be open to sort of saying, so when do you experience this pain? And, and you know, how long does it last? We ask the same questions, but we don't actually expect the answers to sound the same and we we I also say is there something else that I haven't asked you about that you think is important right but also you know when we're talking about people who have sort of non-binary genitals you know or who are very distressed about their genitals because their genitals don't actually represent who they are um I follow their lead in terms of you know, the language that they're using, um, you know, and I only ask questions that are absolutely necessary. And I have, you know, and if they're trying to explain something to me, I, I say something like, draw it out for me, you know, like, I know that, you know, I like, I don't have a picture that could represent every single sort of vari- variation in terms of like genital anatomy. Um, draw it out for me, you know, like in a very, very rough way, like, where is your pain? And, and I use their language, like front hole or, you know, whatever. And so I just adapt to this because I know that this isn't a problem that exists with, you know, penile vaginal intercourse and heterosexually identified individuals. We're talking about, you know, body parts that can be painful for anybody, regardless of their anatomy regardless of who they're having sex with regardless of whatever sexual activity they're having but that also comes from working in the field of sexual health right like automatically I don't have a binary view you know sort of of things like birth assigned sex or gender identity um like I don't come from
from a position where everything has to be fit in a category. And I don't come from a place where I'm an expert on everything. I, I am open to learning and I ask questions that are relevant and respectful in order to best help the person or the population that I'm working with. So it takes, you know, and, and it's challenging sometimes, you know, and, and the English language is so clunky and like so ridiculous, you know, in terms of really trying to be like to really consider and represent that diversity but we just have to do our best you know and maybe make up some words as we go along and allow people that flexibility and that validation regardless of of how they're presenting and who they're having sex with and what kind of sex they're having so I think it kind of comes from that position of inclusivity and representation as opposed to trying to force everybody into that mold you know it doesn't work for most people so there are certain situations uh, where there would be specific kinds of genitopelvic pain that we would uh, not necessarily see in sexual and gender majority populations. And that those would be things like, you know, people who are undergoing gender affirming uh, transitions in terms of hormones, in terms of surgeries, um, you know, as well as really paying specific attention to people who have intersex conditions. Um, for example, there's an intersex condition out there called MRKH. Um, so people with MRKH may have, um, you know, sort of underdeveloped vaginas um, and that, um, you know, there may be procedures that are done, you know, in order to extend the length and allow for, you know, comfortable penetration uh, in terms of sexual activity. Uh, but Sometimes, you know, um, those procedures can actually lead to things like genitopelvic pain. So we really need to be aware of this and think about genitopelvic pain and related conditions uh, in people who don't fit in sort of the binary in terms of their anatomical genital, you know, sort of sex, um, as well as, you know, individuals who are transitioning um, in terms of gender affirming procedures, uh, as well as everybody else who needs to be represented um, in this work. And Dr. Goldstein may primarily see patients in his clinic, but he also started a foundation called the Gynecologic Cancer Research Foundation, which is devoted to the treatment of cervical cancer in underserved countries in both South America and Southeast Asia. I asked him to tell me more about this work. About four years ago, um, I spent a year with my family um, in a family gap year doing um, medical volunteerism um, in both South America and Southeast Asia. And we work with 11 different organizations um, in, uh, in both of these regions. And the thing that we found um, the most impactful was screening and treatment for cervical precancer and cancer. And so when we came back, um, I uh, decided to focus sort of my free time um, on this effort. And I uh, be, started to collaborate with the National Cancer Institute. And the National Cancer Institute has a cervical cancer um, moonshot program that actually was started by Vice President, or then Vice President Biden. And the goal of the cervical cancer moonshot program is to end cervical cancer in the world by 2040. And um, the goal of, of, and it's going to be a, a several prong approach. One of it is to develop a single dose vaccine 
um, and I'm not part of that, but I am part of um, a program where we're using machine learning, also known as artificial intelligence, to take images of cervixes and to diagnose cervical cancer and precancer, so um, as well as to therefore be able to treat this um, these these precancerous changes. Um, um, easily and without the need of physicians to do so. Given that they both do such multifaceted work in the fields of sexual health and chronic sexual pain, I asked each of them what they think is most challenging about working in these fields. Well, um, I think it's I think it's challenging because you don't know what the person is going to come in next person. It, it could be neurologic, it could be hormonal, it could be um, related to muscles. It's also um, so interconnected with the psychological aspects of, of, uh, of sex. It's, it's different. I think that if someone comes in with foot pain, they probably don't have that much emotion associated with that, other than they don't want to suffer and they don't like the pain. But I, don't th- but I think that there's a, such a huge um, psychological aspect of this because it affects not just how a woman sees herself, but also um, her relationship, um, uh, her relationships, and it's also sort of a woman's sexuality really is, is uh, for a lot of women, a very integral part of their personality. And if, so this really if, uh, uh, can affect a woman right down to her core. Um, and so besides trying to figure out the cause, we cert- this certainly has this uh, extra layer or layers because of, again, um, both her uh, perception of this, uh, her, the sexual aspect of it, but also the relationship aspect of it as well. Um, I am wondering, you know, part of why I love what I do is because I could actually help people through my research. Is like, how could I reach people that I'm not reaching right now? How could I reach people who may not even have access to health care? Like, how could I reach, you know, people who have been, um, you know, systemically biased against, you know, in terms of health care? Like, how do we reach those populations to raise awareness? And then how do we support them? So for me, you know, and I work with patient advocates. I've worked with the National Valvadina Association. Like, that we, I have lots of connections, but how do we do a better job? And who do we need to add to these connections in terms of communication, in terms of education, and in terms of support, essentially, you know, and access to these resources? Uh, because even in Canada, we have socialized medicine, right? Um, and so all the medical stuff, more or less, is covered by, you know, your provincial health, ca- health card. But stuff like psychotherapy and pelvic floor physiotherapy, they're not covered by the provincial insurance. Like if you have private insurance for your work or you pay for it, well, that's really great. But a lot of people don't have that. So how could we just make this better, you know, for everybody who has this condition? So I, that's where I'm, I'm at in terms of where I am. And, and I mean, you know, I have multiple studies going on and we're trying to offer like an online where we're just in the process right now of developing an online program, you know, that goes through pain education that tackles, you know, for people with genital pelvic pain and vulvodynia. So, and we, we want to make that accessible, but what else could we do, you know, to sort of get the message out and who else should I like, who else should be 
part of the team of like really getting it out there. So that's where I'm at. The research questions, there are many that, that still need to be done. And, you know, and I think as a field, we will get there. But my, my major concern is how do we align sort of the clinical with the research? And then how do we sort of make the message much more uh, available um, to everybody um, and how do we help with access to care? Well, I think it first has to start in medical school. I think that uh, sexual health has to be part of, um, of uh, medical school curriculum. It can't be just something thrown in there for, again, one 45-minute long lecture. Um, it really, in the WHO says sexual health is, is a basic human right. Um, and uh, so it really needs to be addressed. We really have to um, take out the discomfort of having discussion, discussions about sex with our patients. Um, so it needs to be started there. I think that during um, medical school clerkships um, uh, with, with mock patients or with real patients, um, the, the medical students should be required to discuss sexual uh, sexuality and sexual complaints or even normal sexual function with their with 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 their patients um really they should be able to ask about about uh arousal and sexual desire and orgasm just like they should be able to ask about chest pain or cough or shortness of breath or any other medical complaint at the end of our interviews, I asked both Dr. Goldstein and Dr. Pukal if they would like to say anything to any of our listeners who might themselves be struggling with pain during sex or vulvar pain. Here's what they each had to say. Yeah, absolutely. So for people who have these conditions, I want to say you're not alone and it is real. Um, you know, please, um, you know, take a look at uh, the National Velvodynia Association if it's like the one thing that you do. Um, it will make you realize that you are definitely not alone and they have access to resources and names of people in wherever you are uh, in the world, you know, they will have names of people who are familiar with Velvodynia. So if you feel that you've been dismissed and you have been invalidated or if you just don't don't even know where to go that is usually the first place that I recommend uh, people to go um, there is a book that we put out oh, it's over 10 years old now and we're looking to do a second edition but it's just called when sex hurts and I co-wrote this with uh, Andrew Goldstein as well as Erwin Goldstein um, and certainly um, it is a little bit outdated but it can also sort of provide you with some just basic information uh, about how to communicate about the pain to sort of have you almost identify what kind of pain you have because we cover the most um, sort of common ones there um so those are those are like you know sort of the mainstays there and we you know we're we're doing our best um you know to do research and to help people with this uh, but we also need input as to sort of what's important as well so i'm always open to that um well i can do one little plug which is our website uh, vulvodynia.com has lots of information um uh about that um i think it's uh, and, and we do have uh, a book called When Sex Hurts and a textbook, a brand new textbook called Female Sexual Pain Disorders Evaluation and Management um, that the second edition was just released last week. So um, there are resources out there. I guess I would tell women that it's incredibly important to not give up. Um, there are solutions to your pain. If your local physician does not uh, know them, um, 
please use the resources um, in those books on our webpage um, to um, help uh, try to figure it out yourself and also help your physician try to figure it out. Uh, there really are solutions. We've, we've come an incredibly far distance um, since that first conversation I had with that chairman when he said, well, nobody knows anything. Well, we know a lot. We can always know more, but we've certainly learned a lot in the last 20 years. Um, and we're helping many, many, many more women. Um, it's never enough, but um, so there is help out there. My message is to women out there, if they're told that their pain's in their head, please don't listen. Please keep trying to figure out the cause of your pain. Again, you may be anxious, you may, this may cause depression, but it's not the cause of your pain. This has been the Pint-Sized Science Podcast, part of Science in the News at Harvard Medical School. Many thanks to Hope Marins and Chris Rhoda and the rest of the Pint-Sized Science team for their help, as well as Dr. Andrew Goldstein and Dr. Caroline Pukal for taking the time to chat with me. Have a great day and thanks for listening.